This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. Good morning, you're listening to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. The Coalition for Clean and Fair Elections, known by its Malay shorthand, Bursay, has been an instrumental force in normalising the right to hold peaceful protests. Five rallies were held between 2006 to 2016, and the images of thousands marching in a sea of yellow have become part of Malaysian political history. Post-GE14 and the first change of government, Bursay took a different approach that relied less on street demonstrations and more on roundtable engagement. But the chair of Bursay that shepherded Bursay in the aftermath of GE14 stepped down last month. Is this a rebuke of the path Bursay has taken? Joining me on the show today to reflect on Bursay's evolution and the pace of electoral reforms is Thomas Fan, the former chair. Thomas, welcome to The Breakfast Grill. Thank you so much, Shazana. Now, we have to start with the elephant in the room. You were re-elected to the chair of Bursay uncontested in November, only to resign 10 days later, citing deferring visions in the steering committee about the future of the organization. It seemed to catch everyone by surprise. And to be honest, it reminded me somewhat of Tun Dr. Mahadeh Muhammad's sudden resignation in February 2020. Although in your case, you made sure that an orderly transition was in place. You gave two months notice. And of course, the steering committee of an NGO and the national government have vastly different impact scales. Was the decision to step down a difficult one for you? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, obviously, I think when I offered myself uh, to recontest for the position of the chairperson, I had ideas and plans uh, to move ahead and more importantly, to have a transition to a new team that would continue to lead Bursay into the future. So that was the plan. Uh, but uh, I think we were uh, surprised that there was a challenge to not me because I, I was re-elected uncontested, as you said, but uh, to the team that I had put together, and it became uh, quite quite a contested uh, election. Uh, never before, usually our elections are very dull, boring affair. Most <laughs> positions are uncontested, but this time uh, there was a keen contest, uh, which was healthy. It shows that there was interest in Brussels still. So it kind of like, I think, derailed uh, some of the plans that I had for Brussels. And yes, uh, uh, I'm human. I'm, I was disappointed, mm. but I have moved on since. You see Brussels evolving into a people's institution versus the people's movement that many associate Brussels with. What's the difference actually between these two? Yeah, I, I think for us, uh, the pivotal point, the turning point for Brazil really was uh, post-GE 14, 2018, when finally there was a regime change. Now, uh, there was no illusion with me that uh, the people that came out for the Brazil rallies, the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that came out to support our rallies, the vast majority, 99% probably, uh, have one one goal in their mind, that was regime change. But for some of us who are leading Brussels, we had a longer vision. That is uh, system change. We are, mm. we are not just looking at changing government, but changing the system, the, the, the legislation that was unfair to Malaysians. So, but when uh, there was a regime change, I was, uh, one of the first questions I was asked when I assumed the role of chairmanship is, where are the supporters? 
I say, well, on the 10th of May 2018, 50% left. Then maybe a week later when Bursi issued a statement critical of the new Pakatan Harapan government, we lost another 50% uh, because people could not understand why is Bursi now uh, re- uh, becoming non-partisan when we have worked so hard to install the new government. Mm. Uh, but to me, Bursi is about that. It's about uh, a non-partisan professional institution. And so with the loss of mass support, I had an option of either trying to make Brasse a respected, credible institution or to close it down. I think the, there was an opportunity for us probably to become a political party because most social movements either take that path, they evolve to become a political party uh, or they just fizzle out. So if, if you think of reformacy, it led mm. to Kaadilan. And even Amno uh, was birthed out of a protest movement. Mm. Uh, Hindraf uh, evolved into several political parties. But a lot of mass movement, Arab Spring or what, after a few months or a few years, just fizzle out. So I faced a critical decision with my team to uh, lead Brasey. Uh, and establish it as a reputable, credible, trusted organization. Okay. And does that does the creation of that new trusted organization, does that eschew street demonstrations then? Because Bursay didn't take to the streets when the Sheraton move of 2020 happened, which I, I suppose in its previous iteration would have seemed a natural uh, step to take. Right. Again, one of the earlier questions I was asked and I still maintain to today is that demonstration is part of our right in a democracy and it's never off the table. But when there are avenues, other avenues for engagement to to have constructive engagement, it will be foolish if we don't use them or exploit them to push for the reforms that we, we did. And thank you for the question on Brussels 6. I think if there's any occasion during my five years that deserve a massive rally would have been Sheraton move. You know, um, in, we have a situation where a democratically elected uh, government was uh, overthrown by a, a small group of members of parliament who switched allegiance uh, mid-term. And, uh, but I was uh, in that situation where there was a lot of pressure on me to uh, lead the the Brasse team and call for Brasse six, but knowing at that time the the reason the rationale uh, for the formation of this uh, uh, government uh, that was a Malay unity government, I knew that if I were to call for uh, a protest at that time, it would be pitting the the Malay against the non-Malay and. That is something that I could not do. Mm. I could not do because I came on to the Brissette movement from the streets, really. And it was there that I became a Malaysian because I saw the the unity of of the different races uh, standing together with me demanding free and fair election. And Brissette was one of the few uniting, unifying force uh, over the years that brought Malaysian together and that that is so challenging mm. and I wouldn't want to be the, the chairperson that lead Brussels into a divisive protest that further polarised our, our nation. So instead of holding a protest, we decided to focus on pushing for an anti-hopping uh, mechanism which resulted in the anti-hopping law. 
It's interesting that you point that out, Thomas, because I think in the five rallies that were held in Bursia's history in the past, very little had been uh, shown in, in the sense of electoral reform progress. I think even though there was mass participation on the street, uh, it didn't translate into policy reforms or legislative reforms. Whereas during the Sheraton move, like you said, uh, you, you couldn't take to the streets, but instead what you pushed for was an anti-hopping law which came to fruition. So I suppose that's sort of evidence in terms of the what one can do, I guess, with different pathways taken. You mentioned the whole um, fear about Berse pitting one demographic against the other. And you've been in, in the Berse Steering Committee since 2013, and you also witnessed the departure of PAS from the Berse fold, I think, taking along with it a, a vast Malay Muslim uh, supporter. Do you think the election of Muhammad Faisal Abdul Aziz uh, as the former president of ABM as the chair, will that succeed in making inroads with this demographic? Is what they need a figurehead from that demographic to bring them back? Yeah, I think, I think, first of all, a few things I want to clarify is that Mohamed Faisal Aziz is more than a figurehead. You know, he is a proven uh, activist of many years uh, standing. And that he came about due to a democratic process within Berse. It was an election. So he was the choice of the majority of the voting NGO. I, I know it was a slim majority of one, uh, but nonetheless, this is democracy. So he was recognized uh, as that. So I believe uh, that uh, Faisal, uh, who is my good friend, is able to penetrate uh, new grounds that past chairperson have not been able to, that we have tried very hard. We have some success uh, under my term uh, in the sense that the Malay media, you know, like Sina, Haran, even Utusan and Brita Haran regularly report us after GE 14. Hmm. And I think we count that as a, a great success. But uh, we know that uh, in terms of support base, uh, we are still not there yet. A lot of Malay are suspicious of our agenda. And it is my uh, sincerest hope that Faisal can take us further in that regard. Are there concerns about Faisal's relations with Abim, uh, the fact that this is also a party very much related to the current prime minister? Will that muddy waters in relation to Bursay's non-political affiliations, right? I can see in comment sections, uh, there are already speculation that Bursay will be lenient on the prime minister because of these relations. I mean, true or not, do you think this perception is going to damage Bursay's uh, fight moving forward? Uh, I, I certainly hope not because uh, non-partisanship is something that we work very hard to to be where we are uh, in the last five years. Uh, I remember one of the first acts under my leadership was to reach out to AMNO, MCA and uh, get scorned by them. Uh, but we never gave up. Uh, and over the years, we've built very good and real relationships and friendship with uh, many of the key uh, uh uh, lawmakers over there. Uh, so, but with Pfizer, uh, understandably, uh, Abim uh, has been the platform that the Prime Minister came out from, and they have uh, over the years uh, maintained close relationship with uh, Anwar. Um, but I think under uh, Pfizer's leadership, when he was president of Abim, he has shown that uh, he could issue statement critical of uh, Anwar, especially on the Zahid DNAA. Mm. And I think during the debate, he gave that assurance that uh, he will be non-partisan. But I think more important than that uh, is the fact that the way we work, we are a coalition of NGOs, 
uh, that hold uh, the committee accountable. And within the committee, we have nine steering committee members. Uh, it's not solely the, the chairperson's uh, wish or direction. And, but I think on the plus point is that Pfizer may have better access to the Prime Minister than I would have had. So hopefully that will lead to more reforms. I'm speaking to Thomas Fan, former chair of Bursay, and reflecting on the evolution of this grassroots organization. When we come back, we review the progress of the Madani government's reform agenda. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill. Brought to you by U Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. Thanks for staying tuned to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar and with me today is Thomas Fan, the former chair of Bursay, who resigned in November after five years in the role. We've been reflecting on the evolution of Bursay throughout the years. Um, and one of the things you said, Thomas, was that you hold the view that Bursay's viability as a people's movement ended the day after GE14, when the implicit goal of regime change was achieved. I know that the current, uh, I suppose, thinking of the steering committee is they want to revive that people's movement feeling. What do you think will be the challenges for them to bring that sentiment back? Well, I think it will be an uphill challenge simply because... uh the political environment has totally changed. I think uh, before GE14, uh, it was quite uh, black and white. You know, uh, quite clearly, uh, people were tired and angry with a uh, government that has uh, been authoritarian and becoming increasingly corrupt. So there was a unifying uh, factor across the races to want to change the government. So I think... It was in that environment that Bursay came about. Uh, I think the, the the idea of a social movement is really, it is not engineered by some uh, political elites or individuals, but it is really a response to uh, the mass collective shared feelings of people on the ground. So if you remember the Arab Spring, you know, it was sparked by uh, a trader in Tunisia who out of his own frustration uh, burned himself. And that sparked a fire that spread throughout the, the Middle East. And it was spontaneous. I think we had that moment, but that moment uh, fizzled out uh, after GE14. So it is, as much as I think we can try, uh, it will be an uphill task unless there is another trigger. Uh, for example, the DNA on Najib and Rosma might, uh, be that trigger to to make people uh, unite again, but uh, quite unlikely, I would say. And that hasn't happened. That but hasn't that happened. is the hypothetical scenario in which yeah. something could trigger. Why aren't people as excited about pushing for systems change as they are for regime change, Thomas? Just curious on what you think that, what's that psychological effect at play? You know, I think most people and uh, would think in terms of like bread and butter, you know, what uh, what's important are the economic issue. That's, those are the really important reforms uh, needed. But I have always uh, taken the position that unless we have political and institutional reform that stabilizes and make the government more accountable to the people, whichever government elected will not be able to focus on the structural economic reform to deliver the bread and butter or kaya uh, to people. 
but they will be always constantly politicking, looking out the back and trying to stay in power with populist uh, policies. And that is hurting us uh, mm. in, the, in, in the immediate and long term. So institutional reform, political reform, not so sexy, I admit, but they are critically important if we want to move forward as a country. Last month, Bursay issued its one-year review of the Madani government's progress on electoral and institutional reforms. And the body gave the government a dismal score, really, of 11 out of 51 possible points, mildly surmising the performance as below expectations. Does the fact that Pakatan Harapan's alliance with Barisan National, who were once seen as the black in the black and white uh, dichotomy that you described earlier, is you know, the fact that this alliance is based on preg- pragmatism rather than principles, does that detract from the credibility of the government's reform agenda? I, To me, uh, that is an excuse not to deliver on the reform. Uh, please do not forget that the Prime Minister is leading the main bloc uh, of parties and also that uh, he has the support of the East Malaysian parties as well. Um, But more importantly, I think the reforms that we're talking about, political financing, separation of the uh, public prosecutor from the AG and uh, equal constituency development fund and and all these reforms are in many ways good for all parties, Mm. regardless of they are in government today or not, because anyone can be in the opposition and don't they want to have a more level playing fields? I think they do, you know. So it's a matter of uh, presenting persuasion, political will uh, to push through some of this reform. We are not talking about uh, uh, sensitive areas at all, but very basic to uh, a maturing democracy. So I hope that uh, I, I understand, I understand the first year there was the sixth state election looming and that became a very, very sensitive issue and why uh, Anwar would be want to be careful in putting forth any reform, but that has been over and done with. And I think the next uh, four years, uh, he has really need to prove his credential as a reformist okay. prime minister. So it's really moving forward. What's the next step? It, the ball's in his court, essentially, to Very make the move. So. Yeah. The perception that nation building, of nation building, I want to kind of reflect on that a little bit. The perception is that nation building is the task of government, which galvanizes the different stakeholders in society to achieve common goals. Where does that leave the role of civil society in nation building overall? Is is the role then reduced to what the government sees that it is fit to do? How do you see that uh, moving forward? Thank you for that question. Uh, it's so close to my heart. Uh, you know, um, 10 years ago, uh, when I, or, or slightly more than that, when I was starting to get interested in this issue of nation building, I was uh, given a chance and offer to join a political party and run as a candidate. But I thought deep and hard about it, and I decided that I would invest my life uh, in civil society uh, because I believe that in order for uh, democracy to flourish, uh, you need to have uh, actors who are not chasing after power, but... Uh, chasing after influence in the interests of the rakyat, regardless of who is in government. And I 
believe that at that time, Brasey was igniting the consciousness of the people. Uh, and uh, I wanted to be part of that uh, process to ignite the consciousness of the people. Because, you know, part of a, a, a good, mature democracy is not just healthy political party, but informed citizens, mm. uh, citizens who can hold uh, the parties uh, accountable daily, not just during election when it comes to voting, but on a daily basis on the ground. Uh, they are public servants elected to do the job. They are not elected to be superstar, uh, to have their hands kissed and, and treated as VVIP. But they are our servants, public servants, and our people need to rise to that level. And I think civil society is that bridging uh, uh, part hmm. that create that awakening, the awareness so that we can actually uh, come to a point where the headlines is not about this politician or that politician, but whether this service is working or not working or not. Mm. I mean, if you think of like uh, democracy in Scandinavia, their prime minister ride bicycle to the office, you know, and take the tube or whatever, and there's no issue. Uh, so uh, I look forward to that day. All right. So you see civil society as a kind of third pillar in the whole society. Third force. Third force. You know, a, a we don't lot need of, another political party for a third force, You know, a lot force, of people, right? when they're frustrated with the current establishment, they always talk about third force, third force, and they ask me to join the third force. I say, I'm really the third force. I know it's <laughs> a very small force, you know. But uh, the real third force should be civil society because the difference between political parties and civil society is this. Uh, political parties go for power, we go for influence. We do not compete for power. That's why it's important that we stay out of political contests. It feels like such an idealistic platform or an idealistic principle, Thomas. I mean, how much traction can this get, I suppose, in, in this world where politics rules it all? You know, everything starts with ideal. If we do not have ideal as a guiding uh, light or uh, point, we're all lost. And I think, uh, call me a dreamer, but uh, it's dreamers that change the world. On that note, Thomas, thank you very much for speaking with me. I trust that we haven't seen the last of you yet. We're going to see your third force in civil society. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Shazana. I've been speaking to Thomas Fan, former chair of Bursay. This has been The Breakfast Grill on BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.